0: One of the great joys of ministry in in the local church, certainly uh, in pastoral ministry, I'm confident as well, Uh, a great blessing and joy for all of our elders and for us as a whole uh, congregation, uh, is receiving and presenting uh, new members to the body. In fact, something we'll do in uh, the weeks to come as we've received recently a a couple of of new members. It's a blessing because uh, one gets to witness how God has worked in a way uh, kind of behind the scenes in the hearts of people in His outstretched arm of saving grace and then uh, takes that individual and weaves them into uh, the life of the local church, into the life of the body of Christ. Weaving together individual redemptive stories into the larger body. Central to becoming a member of Christ's body is to give testimony. Testimony of God's redeeming work through Jesus Christ. Every true Christian has a testimony. A testimony is powerful. It's not only powerful and significant in the life, life of a local church, but, but throughout our nation, we think about the justice system. Every day throughout our country, witnesses enter courtrooms, they take the stand, they give testimony concerning some event, some matter. Uh, testimony is riddled throughout the Bible, through the Old and New Testament. And as we come to the the end, near the end of 1 John, this letter the the Apostle John has uh, penned, he, in a sense, brings us into the courtroom of God to give us testimony concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, who He is. And it's ultimately the testimony of God, the testimony of God Himself. So the text is 1 John 5, 6-12. through 12. 1 John 5, beginning at verse 6. Let's give our attention to God's Word and yield ourselves to it. John continues. He writes, "...this is He who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood." Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son, the Son of God does not have life. You may recall how John began this letter in the opening verses of chapter 1. He said, That which was from the beginning, which we've heard, our eyes have seen, we looked at, our hands have touched, the word of life. John, an eyewitness of the Lord Jesus. He said, The life appeared, the incarnation. We've seen it and testify to it, and we're proclaiming it to you. That He appeared. He was crucified. John calls Him our advocate when we sin. He has called Him our propitiation, the one who has bore the wrath of God in our place on the cross. We have seen and testify to it. Now John, toward the end of the letter, is circling back around and is testifying regarding Jesus Christ. No less than eight times in the passage that we've just heard does he use the word testimony or testify But it's not just the testimony of John. It's ultimately the testimony of God concerning his son. This is what we read in verse 9. For this is the testimony of God concerning his son. And so we're moving, in a sense, into the scene of a courtroom. We're to hear evidence, proof, witness concerning the person of Jesus Christ and his work. But again, it's not just John testifying. God, in a sense, is taking the stand to give His testimony about His Son. The central point of the text here that I want us to grasp is that the testimony of God concerning Christ, His Son, is richly supplied. It is completely authoritative. It is from God Himself. And it has serious, eternal consequences. According to John, testimony and evidence concerning the Lord Jesus is richly supplied. Which means that people's unbelief in the Lord Jesus as a Son of God and Savior from sin and death is not because of a lack of evidence or testimony, but because of a hardness of heart an absence of faith, a lack of faith. So John is writing, and he is testifying. He's offering evidence, not because he believes it's the evidence that will change the hearts of men, but he knows that God changes hearts by using testimony concerning His Son, which is why testimony is so critical. John, uh, John is essentially doing what Paul mentions in Romans chapter 10. Faith comes by hearing through the word of Christ. But how will they hear if there's no one to preach or testify? How will they preach unless they are sent? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. The evidence is richly supplied. Practically, what one does with this testimony has eternal consequences. As he says, he who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. So let us see, first of all, the, the rich uh, supply of God's testimony concerning Christ. We see this in verses 6-8. through eight. This is He who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies. The Spirit is truth. There's three that testify. The Spirit, the water, and the blood. These three Agree. And so in a sense, as John writes, he's calling witnesses to the stand. To the witness box. To testify to the truth that Jesus is the Son of God and the only way unto salvation. Well, what an unusual first witness. Water. So John is essentially saying, I call the water to the witness stand. This water is likely referring to the baptism of the Lord Jesus. The water that John, not John the Apostle, but John the Baptist used to baptize Jesus at the inauguration of his public ministry, which is mentioned in all four of the Gospels. He's essentially saying, in effect, water, what did you see? What did you hear? And the water, in effect, responds. As Jesus drew near to me in the Jordan River, I was applied to his head, his body. We won't get into the mode of baptism here. I saw something unusual. I saw something dramatic. The heavens opened. A dove descended on him, this man. A voice broke forth from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. All four Gospels record this event, not only because it was the most powerful and imminent or intimate moment, all three members of the Godhead are given attention. Jesus, the Son of God, being baptized, the Holy Spirit coming down in the form of a dove, and the Father's voice breaking forth from the heavens. But it was powerful because this was the moment that was identifying that this is the man appointed. This is the man qualified to carry out the work of redemption for the people of God. This was the moment. It was like a crack emerging in the wall of a great dam. The dam of sin and brokenness and misery. And the water of God's grace was emerging. The water of healing the water of help, the water of communion with God, was breaking forth. The same author, the Apostle John, in his Gospel, records in chapter 1 of his Gospel that John the Baptist did not know Jesus as the Messiah until he was baptized. Until he baptized Him. It says, I myself did not know Him but he who sent me, the Lord, to baptize with water, said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. People have received water baptism, but this is the one who's going to lavish upon the people of God, the very presence and power of God, the Holy Spirit. I'm confident, in fact, I'm certain that all of the baptisms that you have witnessed in your life, all of those that I've participated in over the years, not one of us has seen the heavens open, a dove descend, and a voice break forth from heaven. If you have, I want to hear about it. The reason I'm certain is because there is only one man qualified for the mission of accomplishing our redemption for us. This is my Son with whom I am well pleased. And this is why we sing, Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Does ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is He. He must win the battle. John calls his next witness. This is He who came by water and blood, Christ Jesus. Not water only, but by water and blood. Now the blood, in a sense, takes the stand and testifies. The blood is essentially saying, Yes, I was there the day Jesus was on trial before Pilate, when He was flogged. His body left bloodied by that scourging whip. I was there when they struck Him repeatedly on the face and head, and placed on his head a crown of thorns. And I, the blood, streamed down his face. I was there when they drove the nails through his hands and feet. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? The blood testifies that indeed... The Lord Jesus was crucified, breathed His last in atonement for our sin. And then a third witness, the Holy Spirit. The water, the blood, and the Spirit. This is the one, the Holy Spirit, whom the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8.16 that the Holy Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are indeed the children of God, a child of God. That inward work of the Spirit in the believer's life. There's a fundamental issue at play in this text. We've probably all heard the saying, you're preaching to the choir. That is, most of us here profess and believe in the Lord Jesus, and we might be thinking, understandably so, pastor, you're preaching to the choir. Of course, choirs need to be preached to as well. But a fundamental issue here is, given the rich supply of testimony concerning Christ, How does one come to believe this testimony as being true? See, that's the great work that God does in the heart of His people. Is it the evidence itself that brings about our trust in the Lord? Is it our reasoning capacity? Is it our intellectual ability to weigh the evidence and the testimony? If you were present at... Backyard Fellowship, two Sundays ago, Elder Richard Jones provided the devotional. As I recall, among other things, he was speaking about creation. How creation speaks to us. We think of the text, how the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim His handiwork. But he noted that it's limited in what it communicates. And then in his description he began explaining the science behind black holes. At this point, if you're like me, it starts to, starts to go over the head. So this past week, I reached out to Elder Jones and asked him to give a little further explanation of black holes. And he wrote a well-explained email, sufficiently thorough. Yet as I was reading terms like gravitational collapse, stars folding in on themselves... Material disappearing from view in the outside universe. Once again, I found myself a bit limited in grasping these things. I did get the part that, as he explained, matter being consumed, what we see is what he called a little burp. I got got the burp part. But here's my point. I may not grasp these things fully. You may not. But I believe what he said to be true. I don't believe it because I can comprehend it fully, but because I trust Him. It's not a blind trust. I know Him. Now, our trusting doesn't make something true. But biblically, when it comes to faith, trust and the gift of faith is the gateway that enables us to rest confidently and see with assurance the truth of what God has revealed. It is a revelatory work by God in the life of a person to allow them and cause them to rest in this testimony concerning His Son, Jesus Christ. In a much greater way, the believer accepts the testimony of God concerning Christ, not because of His intellectual powers. Christian is not smarter than the non-believer does not have a superior intellect, it's because God has revealed Himself in a personal and saving way. He convicts the heart of a man or woman, opens the eyes of his heart, and he sees in Christ life. Alistair Begg said there's no intellectual road to God. People may have questions. They may be on a search but ultimately, it is the work of God. David Wells said, God is beyond the realm of our intuitive radar. There's an invisible boundary between ourselves and God. God in His holiness and we in our sin. But we know the same God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in the hearts of His people to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. The water testifies, the blood testifies, the Spirit. God the Father testifies. What is the testimony? It's verse 11. This is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. In the strongest possible terms, John punches a hole through many things, including the notion of moralism. That Christianity is merely about external moral behavior. This is about life and death. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. What is this life that, that John is mentioning? obviously more than physical life. He says, God gave us eternal life. It's eternal life. But the eternal life he's referring to is not simply about time. It is eternal, but it is much, much more than that. Recall John's opening words in chapter 1, verse 2. He says, The life, Christ, was manifest. We testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and made manifest to us. The eternal life here is Jesus Christ Himself. And when one comes into possession of Christ, they come into possession of life everlasting and life in its fullest. He who has The Son has life. There is a possession of this. John Calvin makes the point on this text of verse 11 that since the Apostle, through this passage, has laid down the evidence and testimony concerning Christ, he then invites us to believe it. And not only to believe it, but to love it. His Son, life eternal, forgiveness. This is a gift from God. God gave us eternal life, John says. Paul says, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. It's a strange and foreign love and grace. That's what we heard in chapter 3, verse 1. See what kind, what manner of love the Father has lavished on us. It's foreign Because we, on a human level, can understand forgiveness. Because we're sinful and need forgiveness, we understand the need to forgive others. We sin against others. We need to be forgiven. So we understand the need to forgive. But God does not need forgiveness. Yet He forgives us still. He has wronged and sinned against no one, yet He pours out grace and love and forgiveness. That's what we have in Jesus Christ. At this time of year, we've certainly experienced a good amount of heat in the last days and weeks, but we know that the time will soon come when firewood will be gathered. People will enjoy sitting around a bonfire, stoking the fireplace, to heat the home. Uh, Starting and tending to a fire has been used at many points in church history as as a metaphor for nurturing life in Jesus Christ. Thomas Kelly spoke about burning the flame of the inner sanctuary as an image for nurturing life in the Lord, life in Jesus We think in times past, this was the first duty of mom or dad in the morning. Get up early, start the fire in the hearth. Throughout the day, stoke it, add new logs. Keep the flame alive and burning. To neglect it is to see the flame die out. When it comes to possessing the sun and thus life, we have to stoke that fire. There's false narratives that we can begin to accept that can begin to shape our thinking and living. One false narrative is this. All that matters is a sincere profession of faith, not having an abiding relationship with Jesus Christ. It's really a contradiction in terms. Faith in Christ centers on life and union and relationship with the Lord. It manifests itself. In private prayer, drawing upon the Lord, crying out to the Lord, seeking His Word daily, regularly, cultivating true fellowship with Him and with with other believers. If the flame is not tended, it begins to die out. The second false narrative is that the only way to be an acceptable Christian is to follow all the rules. The scriptures are full of rules, commands, precepts. But John has already told us in chapter one, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. There's a way of living with a kind of mask on. Outwardly, we appear to have it all together. Inwardly, the heart is shriveling up. God has given us an advocate. Jesus Christ, He bore our sin on the cross. He took the burden of our guilt and shame and He crucified it. He has freed us from sin and death. He rose from the dead. He's alive forevermore. And He offers Himself to us. Abide in Me. I will abide in you. And you will bear much fruit. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, how powerful are those words that he who has the Son has life. We thank you for the gift of this eternal life, this life in communion with you, Father, Son, and Spirit. We pray, Lord, that we would know more of this life as we press into you, how you are a, a gracious and loving Father, one who nurtures us, nourishes us, cares for us, by Your grace and, and Spirit, help us, O oh Lord, to rest in Your presence and in Your mercy. Convict our hearts that, that we who have come in into possession of Your Son would desire more of Him, that, that the things of earth Uh, would grow strangely dim. And Lord, as a result, that we would be overflowing with thanksgiving and joy. That we would encourage one another. We would carry one another's burdens because of all that we have in Christ. Lord, continue with us and nourish us with the Lord's Supper by which you commune with us and remind us of what you have done for us. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.